Oh, that was beautiful. I don't know if I can talk now. I'm all shook up. Our immutable God, what would we do without him? Um, Open, if you will, to uh, Matthew chapter 19. The first hymn we sung, too, reminds me when I first became a Christian, I was reading the words of joy to the world. And you don't realize, if you haven't looked at the words of what the song really says, I made a Christmas card out and sent it to my, my unsaved family saying, look at these words. We've been singing these for years, and look what they say. <clears throat> I wish I would have gotten more response out of it, but it sure affected me. <laughs> so we're in Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 16. I'm not going to read yet, but if you look at that verse, you're going to say, hmm, that looks familiar. Last message I did on the rich ruler, we talked about um, what must I do to be saved. And today, we are going to look at the same passage in a different way. We're going to pull back the curtain and reveal what's going on behind the scenes from Jesus' perspective this time. We want to look at what he says and, and why did he say it. Because Jesus is always trying to get us to see something, isn't he? And actually, I'll, I'll clarify that by saying he's always trying to get us to see something correctly. The gospel message is divided into two parts, the bad news and the good news. And the good news is actually dependent on the bad news being bad, <clears throat> and it is. So... Um, I'm actually grateful for Jim's sharing this morning and breaking of bread. If you were here, it actually ties in with what I want to talk about. <clears throat> if you tell me you have, me have some new kind of drug that is a cure for a particularly difficult cancer, I'm going to say, oh, that's nice. That's good. But if I find out I have that cancer, I'm going to ransack my resources so that I can buy that drug. Do you see what I mean? I see, I see a need there for myself. If you're on a boat and you don't know how to swim and you fall into the water, what do you need? You need to be saved from drowning, don't you? And if I throw you a life preserver, do I need to tell you what to do? I really don't, do I? Because you see your need. You know what your need is. So, in this passage, Jesus is in an evangelistic situation, and this is what he focuses on. And this is something I felt like for many years as a believer in sharing the gospel, I didn't really understand. And it it made my witnessing not as effective as it could be. And I'll tell you something, if I get an opportunity to talk to somebody about the Lord, I want to be as effective as possible. So, we want to see what Jesus does this morning and um, try to understand. I have lots of water up here now. Thanks, brother. (laughs) I do need it this morning. So we'll go right to the verse then. It says in, in verse 16, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, 
keep the commandments. You remember we saw last time, here's this young man who has money and power and just about everything except one thing. He understands that he doesn't have eternal life and he wants to know what is the one good thing he needs to do to get it. So how does Jesus answer him though? He says, but if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. And now wait a minute. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says you're not saved by works. Why does he tell him to keep the commandments? He's not going into the Romans road or the four spiritual laws or the, or the, or the bridge illustration. How come Jesus is not doing what we typically do? What is the problem as he sees it? And we know this too. He sees Isaiah 59 too, right? But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This young man doesn't know that though, does he? Even though he might know the scriptures. He thinks like many people do, and probably like many of us used to think, and that I'm basically a good person. I try to do what I can. I'm, I should be okay with God. But if you ask most people, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? They don't come back with an answer that has assurance. They say things like, I think so, I'm pretty sure, I hope so, I have a really good chance. That's what I said 28 years ago. In fact, I said, I think I'm more, than, more sincere than most. I think I have a better chance. How come the people don't say, yes, I know for sure that if I died today, I would go to heaven? And it's because they basically think they're good enough. That's what I thought too. You can verify this by asking them a second question. You say to them, well, if you were to die today and stand before God and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And you'll hear that come out. I'm a pretty good person. I've done pretty well all my life. You know, I've tried to keep the commandments. <clears throat> I go to church, I pray, I give, I fill in the blank. <clears throat> so this is the problem that Jesus is addressing. He knows that all have sinned, and he knows there's no one righteous, no, not one, but we don't know it. We don't see our need because we don't see sin like he does. We know it's there. We see it every day, but we don't see it like he does. And so when we're in an evangelistic situation, how do you and I typically respond to things like this? Well, typically we use Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and try to tell them that they cannot be saved by what they do. Their whole line of thinking, though, is based on the fact that only the good are going to heaven, of which they think they're probably part of, although they can't tell you for sure. They think God is going to use a scale in the end and weigh their good and their bad, and they're pretty sure that good side is heavier than the bad side, even though no, none of them are keeping track. I ask people questions like that. Some are you keeping track? And, you know, the look on their face. 
No, I'm not keeping track. <laughs> but it shows you, really, it's it, not necessarily the confidence they have, but the darkness they're in. They really don't understand. I know I didn't. Before I heard and understood the gospel, I had no clue whatsoever. <clears throat> so how does it help them when we quote things and we try to convince them that good works are not, not going to help them? It really doesn't make sense to them. And in fact, some of them look at us and say, what's the matter with you? Of course you have to have live a good life. And it's, it's apples and oranges. They're not even on the same path we are at this point. You see that? <clears throat> so we go down the Romans road and we quote Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is that a true statement like Ephesians 2? Sure it is. Does it help them? When we quote these verses and share them, what we're saying is totally biblical. It's totally right. They'll even agree. Yeah, I'm a sinner. But listen carefully. They agree that they're a sinner in the, in, based on how they view sin, not how God views sin. So sometimes we get a little too excited when people say they believe in Jesus and they think they're a sinner and we want to go through the gospel really fast with them thinking they, they understand it. They really don't. So going down the Romans road, we, we show them Romans 6.23 where it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, which is a verse I've always struggled with because it has the bad news and the good views in, news in one spot, and you're really not ready to talk about the good news yet until you get through the bad news, and so that's kind of a problem. But they listen to that verse, and they're usually agreeable. Oh, that's nice, you know. The gift of God is eternal life. And then we show them Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love to us, and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, yeah, they like that because it talks about God's love towards them. And then what, at this point, what a lot of us are driven to do is, is we want to get them to, to, to pray. And we go to Romans 10, 9, and 10 that says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we ask them if they want to pray to receive Christ. And really, if you and I go downtown right now and talk to people and share this kind of message, we'll get people to pray. And we might even welcome them to the family of God and tell them to go to church and read their Bible. And we've given them a plan. We've given them the plan. But we have failed to help to give space for the Holy Spirit to work on their hearts because they need to see sin like God does. They don't need just some information. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm going to say some things like this morning, this morning that might be a little disturbing to you. I'm not trying to do that. Remember, our focus this morning is to look at how do we get people to see the need for Jesus? We don't want to just give them facts they can agree to. The other method that, that I've used and a lot of other people use is the four spiritual laws, which starts off with, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, your life is messed up. God's going to fix it for you. And to me, that's a bad start with the gospel already because it is true that God does have a wonderful plan, but there is a big, big problem before we even get there. 
So we show them John 3.16. We talk about the love of God before they understand the cross. Then we tell the man is sinful and separated from God, and we use Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, and even Isaiah 59.2. And they're agreeable to those things. And then we talk about the fact that Jesus is God's only provision for sin. I'm the way, the truth, and the life in John 14.6. And we would include Romans 5.8 in there too. God demonstrates his own love for us, to us. And then we would look at John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. All very true. And we would look at Romans 10.9 again and Ephesians 2.8. And then sometimes, this was uh, real common for a while, I'm not sure it happens so much anymore, people use Revelation 3.20. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That verse is not Jesus talking to the unsaved. That verse is Jesus talking to a church in trouble. But we're using it as an evangelistic verse and I'm telling you, this is a big book and God knows what he's doing. There are better verses to use that are made for the situation. And so then we'll ask, ask them to get, or try to get them to ask Jesus in their heart, and many will do it. Many have done it. Sadly, a lot of those people are not saved because they've heard a message, but they've never seen their need. They have an idea about being religious and wanting to go to church and do the right thing, but they've missed the boat. We use these things kind of like a formula or a method to get them saved. And it's not that. And I've run across these people and not knowing that they've prayed a prayer and gone through this and you try to evangelize them. And I says, well, if you were to die today, how, you know, how do you know you're, you're, you're going to heaven? I says, well, I, pr- I prayed a prayer. And if you really want to know whether, and it's possible they are saved, but it's also possible that they just prayed a prayer. They said some words, and they don't know what it means. And if you ask them, how did that prayer help you, they won't have an answer. I had uh, a friend who had been going to this particular church for years. Um, He was not saved. I met him through another situation and led him to the Lord. And um, we became really good friends and loved to talk about spiritual things. A while later, he shared with me an experience that um, he was with his pastor. They're in a church where they have on the back of the pews those cards. So if you're a new person, you could fill out, yeah, I'm new, this is me, this is my number, I'd like to talk to you about joining this church. And so there was this couple that had come to the church, and they filled out one of these cards for the pastor, and he went over there and, uh, to meet with them, talk, get to know them. But the pastor got right down to business. Started sharing the four spiritual laws with them. One, two, three, four. Do you want to pray? A couple said no. So he went through the four spiritual laws again and asked them, do you want to pray? And they said no. And they said no, even though he went through it two more times. 
Do you see how we can use things in kind of formula fashion to try to help people, but it's not always very effective? There's a lot more to sharing the gospel and talking about gospel. I know people are at different points when we come across their life, but I'm trying to make a point here in order to be more effective. We want to do, we want to really work with God in an effective way to help people see what the need is, not just some information. One of the things I noticed in thinking about the four spiritual laws and the Romans road and the bridge is that they state the fact that we are sinners, but they don't really do a lot to help us to see what sin really is in God's view, do you understand? And it doesn't really talk about hell. They'll say, yeah, the, you know, if you die, there's death. But it never describes hell. I need to be sure that I understand what hell is so I can be sure that I know I don't want to go there, right? <laughs> 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, especially in a post-Christian country with, with people who are basically biblically ignorant. We have to do more than quote verses. Now, don't get me wrong. God can use his word. I understand that. But we really, need to, we need, really need to help people understand what God is really saying because they're putting it through their religion filter and they're interpreting it incorrectly. Years ago, I had a, a co-worker, and I love this guy. His name was Herb. He was one of those really joyful Christians, and he was very devoted to the Lord and a bold evangelist. And we were walking through the office one day with a woman from, from the finance department, and she was a Catholic, and he was witnessing to her. And most of the time, he was spending, spending the time showing her that the Scripture did not support works as a way of salvation. And he did such a good job of doing this, she got to a point, she says, well, what do I have to do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And he kept walking. And she just stopped and put her hands up and said, well, I believe in Jesus. She's a, oh, so if you're not a Catholic, Catholics believe in Jesus. They have a Jesus on a cross in every one of their churches. They talk about sin. They talk about the fact that he died on the cross. Do they understand it? Not at all. I come from a Catholic background. I'm very familiar with it. <clears throat> Did he tell her the truth? Yes. Is what he said biblical? Yes. Was he effective? No. Did she have more of an understanding at the end of the conversation? No. No, she was more confused now than when she started. The sad thing is, is he had a person right in his hands who was willing to try to talk and understand about these things, and he failed to help her. And so now every time she runs into Christians like this, she knows how it's going to go, and she's not going to bother. That's a terrible thing. If a person who cannot swim falls into the water and you throw them a life preserver, you don't need to tell them to grab onto it. Why? Because they see their need and therefore they see the solution what if we were to share the gospel like that? 
So let's look at what Jesus does. What does he do? He tells the young ruler to keep the commandments. And so why does he do this? He knows how this guy is thinking, isn't he? And he knows if he just tells him, you're not going to get saved by keep, keeping the commandments. He knows that's not, not going to be helpful. The guy is just, you know, not gonna, it's not gonna under, he's not going to understand it. So he uses something he's used for centuries to help people understand their need. The law. Galatians 3.24 Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law was our tutor. What does a tutor do? A tutor teaches. What does the law teach us? Romans 3.20 Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And we make that perfectly clear in our witnessing situations, don't we? But we miss this part. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What do we learn from the law? The knowledge of sin. If people think that they're mostly a good person and have a pretty good chance of going to heaven... Their problem is, is they, don't, they don't see their sin, not like God does. And that's, that's what really counts, right? They may know about sin, but they know it from a worldly perspective or even a religious perspective, but not from a biblical perspective. God does not see sin the same way we do. We do not see how bad we are. We do not understand what a mess we've made of this world and how seriously we have offended Him. They think they're going to heaven because they don't see they're going to hell. They don't see they're going to hell because they don't see their sin. They don't see their sin because they think they're okay. And you need to take people from where they're at to where they need to go. So Jesus uses the law because the law can teach someone about their problem, right? So in verse 18, the rich young ruler says to him, well, which ones, which laws do I need to keep? Verse 18, Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, I'm what am I still lacking? He thinks he's kept them all. And that's, what, that's how we think, isn't it? That shows you the darkness we're in before God opens our eyes. And we need, to, we need to remember that every time we're talking to somebody. Even when they say religious words, it does not mean they understand. So from God's perspective, he hasn't kept any of those laws, but he just doesn't know it. So what does Jesus do? He applies the law. Verse 21 if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Why does he say that? It's a test. He's basically telling him to put his money where his mouth is, because his money is his problem, isn't it? You've, you've seen this passage before. By doing this, he showed the young man that he does not keep the law, 
And by the man's reaction, you see he has no interest in keeping the law. You see Jesus do this in one other place that people are very familiar with, and that's John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Do you remember what he says to her? Go call your husband. And she doesn't have a husband, does she? She's had many husbands, and he just zeroes in on her sin of adultery, and that wakes her up. And she realizes that what she's done, only in her case, she realizes she's wrong, and she gets saved, and she goes and tells others. So what I'd like to do and is to demonstrate the use of the law in a kind of abbreviated fashion and with, with a particular type of um, unsaved person. Because if you've talked to people about the Lord before, you know there are all kinds of things can happen. People can say all kinds of things. Everybody's at a different point. I just want to narrow it down and show you how it can go. All right? And it'll be similar to something we heard in the last message on this particular passage. So when you talk to somebody about the Lord and you're sharing the gospel, you have one of two outcomes. They're either going to accept or they're going to reject. There is no middle ground. And so we take one of the commandments and we ask them about it. Have you ever lied? And this person might, uh, yeah, yeah, I've lied. What does that make you? And now they turn white because they've never said it before about themselves, and we don't do this. He says, uh, I'm a liar. And it's like they're seeing it for the very first time, do you see? The, the light goes on, their eyes, their eyes open wide, because they've never thought of it this way. They've never applied it like that. What if we go through a few more of the commands? We talk about, have you ever stolen anything? Yes. What does that make you? Wow, a thief. Never taken God's name in vain. Never committed adultery, committed murder. Explaining what Jesus means by adultery and murder, you understand. And this person is slowing down and they're talking and, they, and you can see that they're, they're having understanding about what God's law is really saying. It's not just some suggestions or a good way to live. It's the law and I broke it. So then we help them by saying, so then by your own admission, you are a lying, thieving murderous, adulterous blasphemer. And at that point, that person might just fall out of their chair because they've never realized, yeah, that's what I am. And at that point, they might get tears in their eyes. And we should too. There's nothing like sinners coming face to face with a holy God with their sins. 
And it's very powerful. And it's very scary. And it should be. There's no need now to explain why good works won't help them, right? They see it. But you're not done yet. You have to ask them, so then on judgment day, if God judges you by his law, how's it going to go with you? And you might get a long silence after that question, and you need to let that silence be. And so do I. I've always wanted to talk too much, and it just isn't right. If a person is convicted of their sin, they know they are guilty. Convicted simply means convinced. They're convinced that they've sinned against God. They've broken His law. But if you want to test the waters, you can ask them this question. Do you think it is fair if God sends you to hell? The answer to that question will tell you where this person is really at. If they say no, they're not convinced of their sins and you should not go any further. You need to go backwards because they've not seen it yet. The Holy Spirit has not convinced them yet. And if you go forward and run ahead of the Holy Spirit, you're on your own and you don't want to do that. Remember, I'm talking about a particular witnessing situation. I'm not necessarily talking about a situation where I'm talking about somebody I might not see again, right? I'm talking about somebody I'm sitting down and they're very serious about finding out the answers. So you ask them, do you think it is fair if God sends you to hell for your sin? And they will struggle with that, but they'll know it's fair. They'll know they're in trouble, but they don't want to go. And that's reasonable. And they might be quiet and not say anything for a bit. And again, like I have to do with myself, you have to remember to be tough on yourself. Don't rush this. You need to let them think about it. Don't put answers in their mouth or anything like that. It's critical that they see their need. If they don't see their need, a life preserver is going to make no sense to them whatsoever. <clears throat> so then when I, we might say to them, well, we conclude then that you've offended God and being just, he must punish you, punish you for your sins when you die. And they nod, yeah, that's right. Well, what if God doesn't want to send you to hell? Let that sink in. Don't be in a rush. They may not be as clear as you think. I might ask them the question, how can God save you from your sin and still be just at the same time? The penalty has to be paid. There's no way around it. And they might look at you and say, because they've heard God is love. He says, I don't know. That's a good question. How could he do that? Because he can't just sweep sin under the carpet and pretend like it didn't happen. He had a law we broke it, and a punishment has to be meted out. There's no other way around it. God is not like us. You will find even people who've been going for, to church for years will have that response. 
All right, I love to get into this part now, but we all do. What if God could find someone that would be willing to suffer hell for you? I watched a guy answer this question this way. He says, no way. Who would do such a thing? And that's a, that's a proper response, isn't it? Why would somebody go suffer something for me that I deserve, right? You say, but what if someone suffered for your punishment? Then can you see that God, God's justice could be satisfied and he could save you from that punishment? And this is a principle of substitution that most people cannot get. And one of the reasons they cannot get it is because they don't see their need for it in the first place. So what if, what if God could do that? Can you think of anyone who might do such a thing? And even people who've been Christians for years don't see it right away. But for some of them, it slowly dawns on them. And they get this incredulous look on their face and they go, they say his name, Jesus. Jesus. Oh my, I had no idea. I didn't realize what he did. The true meaning of his death. I've been looking at these verses for all my life and I did not understand what he did for me. And then the tears might come again. And yours should too, and mine. And they say, John 3.16, oh wow. For God so loved the world... He gave his only begotten son, so I wouldn't have to perish. All I have to do is believe. And they might just say, how am I ever going to thank him enough for what he's done for me? Do you need to ask a person to pray at that point? They saw their need. They saw the life preserver. They grabbed it. They understand completely. It makes all kinds of sense to them now while the rest of the people around him could be in darkness. Wouldn't you love for that to happen? Over and over and over again. Okay. What about the person who doesn't respond that way? Look at verse 22. But when the young man heard the statement, statement he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus doesn't try to get him to pray a prayer, does he? He doesn't even tell him he's the only way. These things don't mean anything to a person who doesn't see their need or they're not interested. He even lets the man walk away. If I don't see my sin, I don't need a Savior, do I? Many times, and I've done this, we talk too much and we harangue people into agreeing what the Bible says and to praying a prayer. And maybe we should be letting them walk away. It's possible to badger people into making a profession of faith, you understand. And that's really spiritual malpractice. We should not be doing that. Sadly, one of the places we can be really guilty of doing this is with our own children. 
we can really put the pressure on them. And I've seen some people who take a lot of pride in their kids being saved. And I'll tell you what, pride has no place there whatsoever. It's not a game. We should not be trying to manipulate things so we can be a successful Christian. That's not what this is all about. The saving of a soul is God's work through His Spirit. And we, He allows us to work alongside Him. And so our work ought to have the integrity that His does. And I thought it was interesting. Have you ever thought about the fact that God put this story in the Bible? Here is a situation where Jesus Christ Himself is evangelizing a person and that person rejects Him. And we forget that Jesus said that narrow is the road to life. Few are those who choose it. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to give into people of sin, isn't it? And to regenerate them to life. It's therefore incumbent upon us to give him as much material to work with as possible. Hmm? To be as effective as possible in helping people to understand sin from God's point of view. And make real clear the punishment for the sin. So the, so the Holy Spirit can really open their eyes and show them what's really going on. And if they're convicted of their sin and they understand the cross, they'll grab onto it like a life preserver. If they're not convinced of their sin, you might as well take a round peg and try to slam it into a square hole because it's not going to work. So I hope this morning we look at this passage and we see what Jesus does. What's the fundamental need here? The person needs to see their need to be saved from God's perspective, right? There's a lot of things to talk about when you talk about sharing the gospel, and soul winning. But this one thing is foundational. If this doesn't happen first, none of the rest can. Not the way it's supposed to. So one of the things I've been working on personally a lot is learning to use the law to help people see their need for the Lord. Because we have the absolute most important message that this world needs to hear. And we need to deliver it as such. Lord, we thank you this morning for those of us who know you. We heard this message. Maybe it wasn't done so well. Maybe it was done. You opened our eyes and saved us anyways, Lord. We look at the responsibility you've given us and the honor and the privilege of going out to a lost and dying world and helping them come to know you like we have. And Lord, we just want to be as effective as possible. Help us to take a lesson from the things you did this morning that we might be effective for you and very useful tools in your hand for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.